Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Literacy Podcast. We can't wait for today's episode because we are talking with a mom who has taught herself all about the science of reading because much like one of our other previous guests, her daughter is dyslexic. So she had to teach herself and learn all about how reading occurs. And then she realized, oh my gosh, this is not, these best practices, these science-based practices are not happening in my child's school or in my child's district. So I'm going to be an advocate. Melissa, how inspired were you? I mean, yes. <laughs> I just love when we hear about parents who realize, right, the disconnect between what should be happening in schools and what is not happening in the most in most cases in schools. Because, I mean, that's that's the biggest aha, right? We all of us education people have our like, well, I think this and I think that, but when a parent sees this is not working for my child <laughs> and what you're doing in school is not working. Yeah. That's just a whole different ball game. And I, I love talking to, to parents who have made that realization and are doing something about it. Mm-hmm. And Katie's story is especially impactful. I can't wait to, to have her tell it, um, especially like the, the pure data points on her daughter's progression. So mm-hmm. without further ado, Katie, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Katie. Katie. Thank you, Melissa and Lori. Um, Yes, so I am um, Katie. I'm the mother of three kids. I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a six-year-old. And um, I, in my other life, when I'm not homeschooling, (laughs) I'm doing um, pediatric anesthesia. So I'm a pediatric nurse anesthetist. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's what I do a couple days a week. And the other days I'm homeschooling my three kids, um, which I guess I'll get to the reasons why I'm homeschooling. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So, so I started out with my daughter who's now nine, she's in fourth grade, but she, um, she started kindergarten and she, um, we kind of thought we had her prepared for like, you know, whatever you need to have your kid prepared for. We'd read to her all the time and sure. And um, she had a great vocabulary and she was excited about learning. And then we got in there and like throughout kindergarten, she just couldn't learn. And um, I was kind of this like hippy dippy parent. And I thought, you know, you just read to kids. It's fine. They don't really need anything other than that. They'll all figure it out. And um, so by I don't day, think that's hippy dippy, by the way. I think that's just what parents are told. That's for sure what parents are told. You're right. You're right. That is, that is, yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you though. It does feel like a very like lackadaisical, like just uh-huh. relax and read kind of approach. So I hear you on that, Katie. Right. We went to play-based preschool where it was like, oh, you know, just, you know, kids don't need to wear shoes and, and just expose them to books. And fine. Right. So, so, um, so yes, yeah, so she got in kindergarten and she, um, she only knew four of her letters and their sounds by the end of the year. And I just kept going to the teacher and I was like, something's going on. I just, I'm not sure like what it is, but I feel like she should know more than this. And she Mm -hmm. was telling us, she told my husband, she was like, daddy, I feel like everybody else is at the top of the staircase and I'm at the bottom of the staircase and I can't figure out why. And that's in kindergarten. She realized kindergarten. Yeah. Kindergarten. So um, that was when I started to realize the emotional end of this is pretty big. So we ended up pulling her out. I mean, over the summer, we got her tested um, by a, like a full psychoeducational evaluation like the school does, but we paid for it privately and um, we found out she was dyslexic. And I just remember just being like, oh my gosh, yes, this is what's going on. There's a new <sighs> Right. And and you, thought- you figured it out early too. What? Like, like what made you get her tested so early on? You know, so we ended up having a kindergarten teacher tutor her. It was just a friend of a friend. And she told me, she's like, you know, some kids learn differently. Maybe she needs to move more. Maybe she learns through listening, learns through seeing. Why don't you just get her tested? And um, and so we ended up through another friend, through a friend, we got her tested and she came back as dyslexic. But the teacher, the kindergarten teacher didn't say anything to me about dyslexia. She just said she has a hard time paying attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no mention of dyslexia, even though she couldn't break apart words, she couldn't put them back together. She had all the classic signs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But at that time, you know, I didn't know any of that. So she, um, yeah, so that's how we ended up getting her tested. Um, it was just kind of a fluke, actually. It's not like I had dyslexia on my radar screen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I only thought- ask that because I feel like typically parents, I mean, the parents that I've spoken with typically don't find out until later. Like, I feel like you found out a little bit earlier, which is incredible. But like parents, sometimes it, it gets to that point where like, oh, my child's in third grade or in, you know, that fourth grade and they're really, really struggling. And not to say that your child is not like not to diminish Cora's struggle at all. But um, I feel like sometimes the story is a little bit, oh, we waited till they were older. So that's very lucky that you did that so early on. It is, it is very, we feel very fortunate and blessed that we were able to figure it out so early on so that we could get some good interventions because mm-hmm. um, early intervention is, is key. But um, it was, it was kind of a fluke. It was also my mother, my brother has Down syndrome. And so she has like this superpower of figuring out when kids have learning differences. And, um, and so my mom just kept saying to me, she's like, Katie, I don't know what's going on, but there's something going on. You have to figure out what's going on with Cora. And so that was kind of the thing that kept pushing me to like dig deeper and dig deeper and dig deeper. And I kept digging deeper with the school and they were like, no, everything's fine. And I was going back to my mom saying like, no, the school says everything's fine. You know, it must be. And my mom's like, no, that's not true. I don't know what's going on, but there's something. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So we ended up, um, figuring out that Cora had dyslexia. And like, like I said, I, I just thought you just flipped your B's and D's backwards. I had no idea it actually even had right. anything to do with reading. Yeah. And, um, but then as I started to like dive in and realize, oh, this is what's causing her reading difficulties. I, um, I remember going to her first grade teacher who was a delightful lady, but I remember going to her and telling her like, so Cora, that's my daughter has dyslexia. Like, and thinking she was going to say, oh my gosh, thank you so much for figuring out what it is. Now we can know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. That, that was exactly what I expected to happen. And, and instead she, she got a little angry and kind of like, didn't really, it's like, well, you know, with, I don't know. I mean, sometimes kids learn to read at different speeds and I, don't, I wouldn't know what to do with that anyways. And I just remember like going home and thinking, did I say something wrong? Like she was kind of angry at me. <laughs> he like, <laughs> what do I do with this? And, um. So anyway, so that was my first introduction to the, how the school handles dyslexia and kids who struggle to read. Yeah. Um, I remember, oh, sorry, Katie. I was just going to say that I know Lori and I have talked about this before. We both have our master's degrees to be reading specialists and have minimal training in what to do with a student with dyslexia. And that, that, that to me is kind of shocking, like from the teacher end of things too, like. I wouldn't know what to do either, <laughs> which is terrible, but I get, I get where she was coming from as well. You know, it's, yeah, yeah no, I, and it was interesting that um, the principal actually has a special ed degree and she told me kind of the same thing. Like, well, some kids learn to read in fifth grade. It, it'll all come together. Oh, um, you're like, it's not coming together though. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I wonder though, Katie, you know what I'm wondering as you're talking, um, I was over the weekend, I was. Uh, talking with a new friend who's a pediatric nurse and she had listened to the podcast um, and she was like, so I I have a a daughter who's struggling. I'm really curious about like the science of reading stuff. And I said, well, let me just preface the whole thing in that education is new to science, like new, like, right. We're, we're, we're really trying to use science now. um, Whereas your field of nursing, all you use is science. <laughs> and she just like, she couldn't, like, I, I was, you know, ex- trying to explain it to her, like, you know, words have letters and letters have sounds and we want to use sounds and not use picture cues. And she's like, I just don't understand. Cause what you're saying kind of feels like it just, it makes like a lot of sense. And I'm like, kind of like, duh, obviously you would sound out words. Like, but it's, so I'm, I wonder, Katie, if like your instinct in the medical profession had an impact, like, do you ever, did you ever think about that or make that connection? Like your, your field is so science-based, it has to be. Um, yes. I, I mean, I make that connection almost every day when I'm either doing my doing anesthesia or when I'm like working with my kids. I mean, I think about it all the time. Like I had this kid the other day who had severe mitral valve stenosis. So I do mostly pediatric cardiac 
anesthesia and he had severe mitral valve stenosis. It's a valve in your heart. Um, and I hadn't taken care of a kid with severe mitral valve stenosis in a while. So the night before I went into work, I like get on and I do a, a Google search and I do a research, you know, a lit review of how, what, like, what's the pathophysiology of mitral valve stenosis. And then once I read that up, I went and I looked at the anesthesia implications and figured out what do I need to do in order to take mm -hmm. care of this kid so he does okay under anesthesia with me and he can come out on the other side. And then I think about like the, the parallel with that in school. Like mm -hmm. if you end up having a child with dyslexia, yeah. From a medical, from like the medical standpoint, you would go in and you would look up dyslexia. You would figure out the pathophysiology of dyslexia. You'd figure out what it is. And then you would go in and you would look at interventions and figure out what interventions do I need to do in order to support this child to learn? Just like I'm doing what interventions do I need to do with my anesthesia and the drugs I'm giving and everything to make sure that this child is supported under surgery. Yeah. And so I, I think about those parallels all the time. And I mean, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I think that, you know, obviously that emotional impact sticks out to me from what you're saying. Um, but it, it sticks out to me so much because you're mentioning it in five-year-old Cora, who is excited about school. But we also recently interviewed uh, a 62-year-old man who had just learned how to read in the past year that where we interviewed him. And the things that you shared with us, right? Like Cora thought she was dumb. She was becoming very anxious. She had like tip behaviors that were not typical for her. And I felt like when they were the, the way that the, um, you know, 62 year old man was explaining how he felt was very analogous to how Cora felt. And I thought that was so interesting. Like there's a 60 year difference and these two people with this same, um, with dyslexia, we're feeling the same way. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, cause I, I, I don't know that I, I hadn't listened to your podcast yet about the guy who was older, but that's really interesting to hear you say that. Cause I'm reflecting back on Cora still comes to me and comes up with me, comes up and tells me things that happened to her in kindergarten and first grade. Mm -hmm. And they're still fresh in her mind. And so the trauma that occurs emotionally and yep. psychologically, which also translates into socially, mm -hmm. um, is really profound. And that's interesting that it it carries on through life and that there can be somebody who's 60 years mm -hmm. old still feeling the impacts of not being able to read. Mm -hmm. Do you all listen to Brene Brown? Yes, I love Brene Brown. I, she always comes into my head when we have this conversation. I think of like the, her when she talks about shame, right? And like what all that that does to you. And I, I, I don't think we think about it with things like this, right? Where like students are feeling this like shame of not being able to achieve the way they want to and yeah. what that does to them. Like you just said, the trauma of it, that it, that it brings. Mm -hmm. right? right. And, and I think of the teachers and how much time we spend on behavior issues Right. Uh, and like, don't think about what's behind them. <laughs> right. We just think, oh, got to call these parents because they're acting out. And I mean, so much time and effort and not thinking about the real root cause. Yeah. Well, Melissa, I mean, I can't agree with that enough from like a parent standpoint, because as teachers, like you're not going home with this child. I mean, you mm -hmm. can't 24 kids. Okay, but you're not <laughs> going home with this kid and seeing the aftermath of what's happening after they leave school. Yeah. And from, from what I've learned and from, I've talked to lots of other parents who have kids with dyslexia and they're struggling too. It seems like some of the kids are the behavior issues in the class. Mm -hmm. it's probably better to be, to be bad and sent to the principal's office than it is to be stupid. Um, yeah. And then there are kids that fly under the radar for the teachers. And those are kids like my Cora who pull it together. They hold it together the whole time at classroom and then they get off school and they lose it. I mean, they're <laughs> falling apart, yep. they're crying, they're screaming. They're, I mean, just, and these are kids who are holding it together in class. So they're probably not going to stick out to a teacher, Yeah. but when you get home, it's just horrific. I mean, I wrote, we did, um, I was their there. safe place. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, 
And uh, I, I do some work with the International Dyslexia Association, and um, we were doing a dyslexia simulation. And um, I, unbeknownst to me, Cora's like standing outside the door listening to me do this on Zoom. <laughs> and so um, after it's over, she came in and like sat down with me and started talking to me about like what it was like for her to be in first grade and not know how to read. And um, it was really powerful. Like I didn't realize that the trauma that she had gone through, I mean, I did realize the trauma she had gone through, but it was just interesting to get an insight into what, what she had gone through. Like she was telling me that um, she used to, when they would have to find a book to read, she would find the easiest books where she could look at the pictures and figure out what the words said from the pictures. And then she would go outside and the, the teacher would go find them on the, on the playground and have them read to her. And, and Cora was saying that she, there was a big rock that the teacher didn't know about. And she would always go and she would hide behind the rock during recess because then she couldn't find her. And then she wouldn't have to read. And it just just brings like tears to my eyes thinking that my six-year-old or seven-year-old was going through this in class. And so, yeah, if I say something to teachers, like or could say something to teachers, it would just be like the emotional, social, psychological impact of not being able to read is really profound, even Mm -hmm. on the kids that don't have behavior issues, um, it, it can be really profound on on the kids who don't have behavior issues and the kids who do have behavior issues look for learning disabilities behind those behavior issues to mm-hmm. explain. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, this is this is so helpful to frame like what you're going to share next, because I feel like you pulled her out of school and you tutored and homeschooled her. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about what that tutoring looked like and the stats? Like I know <laughs> she went from not reading at all to becoming a reader in a very short time frame, and to a pretty minimal percentage to a very high percentage. So if you could tell us about that, we'd love to hear about Cora's story. Yeah. So, so it's, it's really an exciting story um, for me. And I think it's an exciting story probably for teachers too, to see like what, what these kids are capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Cora's story is we pulled her out um, to homeschool her after first grade because she was just falling apart and and just couldn't read at all. Like I'd shown her the word the a thousand times and she still would look at it and couldn't figure out that it was the word the. So I was like, you know what? I don't know how to homeschool. I don't know how to teach the kids to read, but I know that I can figure it out. And um, despite what what the schools are trying to do. That's really good. I know I could do better than this. Yeah. So we, we pulled her out and, um, and homeschooled her and just by, by, um, luck or blessing or something, we ended up, um, finding a Orton Gillingham tutor. She, it's a lady who's phenomenal. She's the president of the international dyslexia association, the LA branch, Los Angeles branch. And, um, she uses structured literacy to teach kids to read. Um, and so Cora went in not knowing how to read anything, couldn't read the word cat, couldn't read the word dog, you know, nothing. And um, you said 1%, right? 1%. She was it. Yes. Yeah. So, so she had to take, we were homeschooling her through a charter. So she had to take this test called the star 360. I think it's like one of the benchmarks tests. Okay. And when she takes it, she, she takes it at the beginning of second grade and she's reading at first percentile. Um, so then, uh, like fast forward a year and a half later, a year and a half of structured literacy instruction forward. And um, she gets tested again and she's reading at 92nd percentile. Wow. So she's comprehending at the level of an eighth grader. And this is in third grade. And That's this amazing. Is just with high quality reading instruction. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, yeah. Another thing we didn't mention is my, my son is dyslexic. So um, he's seven, but he started with the same tutor doing Orton Gillingham structured literacy reading instruction. And he went from not reading at all to reading at a fourth grade level in one year. And wow. he's dyslexic with ADHD. But um, if you get the kids the supports they need and, and give them high quality reading instruction, these kids are going to learn how to read. Mm-hmm. Katie, did you see a change? Like, you know, you said she was coming home and (laughs) having meltdowns and (laughs) all of that, but, you know, behavior and you saw the trauma in her. Did you see a change in her holistically? 
Absolutely, Melissa. Yeah, we we saw a huge change in her. She like before she went to kindergarten, she was just this child who was just full of joy. Like if I could describe use any word to describe it, it would be joyful, <laughs> super joyful. And then for two years there, kindergarten, first grade, she was a disaster. And then once we got her back into a homeschool environment, she realized she um, could read. She realized she was capable of it, and she stopped comparing herself to everybody else in the room yeah. and she started getting instruction that worked for her. She um, went back to being that joyful child. Yeah. The the only thing that, that was a struggle is she still had some like trauma almost sounds like a strong word, but I don't think it is a, a too strong of a word or too dramatic of a word. Cause she went from, um, or she, sorry, lost my train of thought there. She um, <laughs> had this like leftover trauma from having been in a, in a place where she couldn't read and she could see everybody else reading. Yeah. So we actually ended up having to, to put her with a therapist, which if you had ever told me yeah. I was going to put my seven-year-old with a therapist, I would have told you I was crazy. <laughs> no, like, oh, that. And then I realized, no, that's actually not true. <laughs> like, was, so we ended up doing like a year of therapy with her just to kind of overcome the emotional and like educational trauma. And yeah. Um, yeah. And it's interesting. She took about a year off from therapy and she's just started back in a schooling environment, like two days a week. Now we're still homeschooling her, but two days a week, she's in a schooling environment and we ended up putting her in therapy for another, for a month prior to that, just to kind of help to her prepare. to prepare her for like, you were in an environment where you weren't supported and you were, and you felt awful about yourself and you're going into an environment and you're a new person and you can read and you're going to do great. But, but it's interesting that like we had to end up putting her back into therapy just to kind of deal with the trauma that went on from not being able to read. Yeah. Ah, oh, we're big yeah. therapy fans. We feel, I, I mean, <laughs> Melissa and I, it's, I just think it's so helpful for kids and I mean, adults alike, but kids especially to have someone who's not a parent to talk to and to help them think through stuff. Yeah. Well, and mm-hmm. I think too, like when I, you know, when you said like trauma, I don't know if this is trauma, but it is right. I mean, if you think about it this is trauma, like, five, six-year-old who is hiding from her teacher every day on recess instead of being able to just enjoy recess because she's so anxious and nervous about having to read. I mean, that is just... Oh my gosh, that would have broken my heart. Like, had my child come to me and been like, I was hiding behind a rock. Like, I can't even imagine how you felt. Every day, you know, it's not like it was a one-time thing. It's like, That's and, that's stress for a child. And you know, it's interesting. It's also stress for a parent. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I haven't been through therapy for it, but maybe I could. Um, <laughs> we, there was, I used to volunteer in the class. It was like 40 minutes a week, but I went in and there was a time where they did a thing where they would read aloud to a partner. And I'm in this small group and there's like six kids and they're reading aloud to the partner. And I am just so upset inside because I'm like, you know, Cora can't read. Why would you have her read to a partner when you know she can't read? That's mm-hmm. so embarrassing. And there's so much shame in that. And the interesting thing, and and this might be interesting for teachers to hear too, is I was like, my jaw was on the floor listening to Cora read. The teacher had read the book before to the class. Cora had memorized the entire book. Mm-hmm. And when she went to read it to her classmate, she read it fine. And I brought, and I was so confused. So I brought the book <laughs> and had her read it to me. And she did the same thing. She read it fine. But I was looking, her word, her eyes weren't on the words. They were on the other page. She had just memorized the book. So kids, I think the shame is so profound and the desire to read is so strong that these kids come with these amazing compensatory strategies. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of the Emily Hanford podcast. Remember? Yeah. Yes. The girl, I mean, the, the little girl memorized, um, memorized <laughs> words and books. Like, like yeah, it was nobody's find, job, business because she find ways did. to look like they yeah. are, <laughs> are reading. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, oh Katie, you said that it's, you know, it can be stressful for parents. And I think like, I mean, you said you kind of lucked out with the tutor that you found and um, you were able to, you know, pull Cora out in homeschool. I'm wondering about like, I know that you're now like advocating and helping other parents because I think that's where a lot of parents stress probably comes from is when they just don't know what to do, right? If they're in a similar situation as you were, but are like, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know where to go. (laughs) Right. Um, 
Yeah, no, that, let's see, where, where do I go with that question? There's a lot of different <laughs> directions I could go with that. Um, yeah, when, when I first realized that Cora had dyslexia, we, that it was a struggle to figure out what to do with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, now, of course, I know where to go. I turned to you. I turned to Emily Hanford podcast. I turned to, you know, different podcasts and, and textbooks and David Kilpatrick. And, and, but, but when you're a new parent looking at this, it's, it's hard to know where to go. And there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. Mm-hmm. Trying to um, but um, yeah, it's really a challenge to find good resources. You can always go to the International Dyslexia Association. They have a lot of branches and that would be a good yeah. resource. Um, but um, my my goal and advocacy within our district is so that parents don't have to do this two-year scramble and try to figure out what does my child need to learn to read? Okay, now that I know how to teach them to read, how do I find somebody? How do I get them the extra supports they need? Like my goal in advocating is so that other parents don't have to go through what I went through so that their children don't have to go through what my child went through. Mm-hmm. Um, I want the schools to be the resource, the schools to be giving high quality reading instruction in the general education classroom so that all the kids can learn to read. And that portion of kids that can't, that needs extra support, they, when the parents need to know what, what, what does my child need to learn to read better? They just go to the special ed department. They don't have to go outside to a private tutor that can cost between $50 and $100 an hour. Yeah. Because there's a lot of kids out there, obviously, who can't afford that. Their parents can't afford that. I mean, we are blessed in that my my husband and I have made it work. But I've talked to a lot of people who are scraping by their parents are paying for it. They're, I mean, like their grandparents are paying for it, mm-hmm. they're taking out mortgages on their house. They're doing things like trying to find money to pay for private tutoring. And then there are people out there who just don't have resources at all. Yeah. And those kids end up being the kids who end up having really poor outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's my, that was a long and kind of yeah. wild answer to your question, but <laughs> that's my goal in advocacy is so that the schools are the places that you turn to when your child is struggling. Yeah. To read. So you really became like a little local expert um, in your town and parents started coming to you saying, my kid can't read. They can't figure out their sounds. The teachers are saying everything is fine, but this doesn't make sense to me. And what I'm seeing doesn't line up with what the school is saying. And then they would get that private assessment. They'd be quoted as dyslexia. And then the school wouldn't give appropriate interventions. So then they're coming to you saying, well, what do I do? You've done this. You know, what do, what advice do you give them? And I, I think that, like there's also that question of like what resources are available within the community, which we kind of touched on a bit. Um, but I'm curious, like, what do you share with parents who ask you that? Like, what do we do now? <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. I, I've had this, this conversation so many times over the last two years that I've refined it. So I'm able to steer them in the right direction now. <laughs> before, but um, I had this conversation last Tuesday with a mom whose child is in fifth grade and she, I got on the phone with her and she goes, I'm sorry. She goes, I'm going to try to hold myself together, but I may start crying. It's been a really bad week. Mm. And, um, and so her child's been crying the whole way through class. <laughs> I mean, it, behavior issues, just the whole thing because he's in fifth grade and can't read. And she's like, what, what do I do? So um, um, the I usually recommend getting a psychoeducational assessment through the schools Mm -hmm. um, with the caveat that different school psychologists are going to do different assessments. And just because they say something isn't going on, they say everything's okay. That's not necessarily the case. Um, Can you share, do you know why? um, I, um, I don't know why. I'm not sure if it's that this, those school psychologists are not up to date on the science of reading and up to date on research about mm. reading and how reading works. But I went to a school psychologist um, and told her my son showing the same signs of dyslexia. My husband has this. My daughter has this. My son showing all of these signs. I'd like to have him assessed. And she said, no, no, I've talked to him. He's fine. He doesn't need anything. Um, and then we went to a private assessment and he has dyslexia. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, 
So and it I just think- makes so much sense to have the school be the resource, right? Like the district and the school, like to have these private assessments seems wild. Like let's just, the, the schools could be the place for parents to go. Right, right. Well, and, and how think- many teachers wouldn't question it because it is coming from the school, right? Like, well, the you know, if the school psychologist said so, then that must be the case. Right. And then, and I had talked to my child's teacher and said, hey, listen, I just want you to know we have a strong family history of dyslexia. My son is showing signs with, of dyslexia. I want you to, to know this. And then the school site comes back to the teacher and says, no, no, he's fine. He doesn't have anything going on with him. It's just, you know, so, so um, <sighs> yeah. Um, so much going on. Yeah, There's so, so like, much I, going on. <laughs> I, I, I think there could be uh, some professional development because um, I don't think the school psychologists are out there to do the wrong thing. I think right. they go into school psychology because they care about kids and they want kids to thrive. Right. Um, but I think you, th- I think there's probably some professional development um, from for school psychs that would be really helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I tell the parents go to the, get a school, get an assessment from the school. Um, if it says something is going on, then, then, talk to your school about it. If they say something's not going on and you still have a suspicion, then go get a private assessment. Um, Or you can get a IEE, uh, independent educational evaluation. Um, Mm -hmm. So, um, and then if the parents have the money, then I have um, four, five, six people that I have in the area and some virtual ones that I can recommend for reading therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can, I can tell them this is, this is how you're going to get high quality reading instruction. And this is how you're going to get your kid to learn to read. Yeah. Um, And those are the ones who are trained in Orton Gillingham and yep. Okay. Exactly. So the ones I'm recommending are using Orton Gillingham or Orton Gillingham based programs like Wilson or Mm -hmm. Slingerland. um, Yep like that. Yeah. Got it. One of the things I think that makes you really unique is that you are an advocate, but you are not just an advocate in the, like, we need to help our dyslexic students by only focusing on the dyslexia portion of like the remediation or the um, intervention. You also mentioned that uh, in our pre-call that you're really passionate about the knowledge building and the vocabulary and that whole portion of the reading rope. And also we were very impressed when we were talking about the reading rope and you're like, I know the reading rope. (laughs) So you've clearly done a lot of reading um, and, you know, have an understanding of it. But I, I think that we used this term that parents are the sleeping, I'm sorry, Wexler used this term, parents are the sleeping giants and um, in our podcast with her. And I just, I wanted to hear your take on that and how you are working in your district to really help balance those pieces, right? How you're going to support this, um, you know, these, this word recognition, the systematic approach, this structured literacy approach, but then also using what you know about knowledge building and vocabulary to not ignore that, especially in those primary grades as students are learning to read. Yeah. Um, gosh, when you ask these questions, I, I get so excited. I feel like I have <laughs> so many different answers. So I'll, I'll put it in one place. So, um, the first thing um, I think is as far as doing structured literacy um, advocacy within the district, We I, I have worked with the district to um, get structured literacy, Orton-Gillingham training to all of our special ed teachers, all of the um, RSPs. I'm not sure. Uh, SAIs, uh, maybe it goes by different names in different parts of the nation, but um and then all of the um, teachers who go into the classroom for struggling readers. So we're getting special ed, we're getting ordinary hand training for all of the district's 19 um, special ed teachers who are working with struggling readers. And so um, that's what I've done on the structured literacy side um, for advocacy. And then um, for, well, I've, when you said the Natalie Wexler comment about um, sleeping giants, it's funny because that is, that was like the comment that, kind of got the whole ball rolling for me. I um, oh, that's kept great. hearing like, yeah, <laughs> I kept hearing um, the name Natalie Wexler come up. And so um, I was like, well, I probably should read her book. I mean, sounds like she's kind of a big deal in the literacy world and sounds like she knows something. So I read this book. And, um, there was obviously the knowledge gap and I read about um, 
building knowledge. And it was this whole other level of of reading that I didn't, I mean, that other strand of the reading rope. I was very familiar with how to help kids decode, but I didn't know this knowledge building. And then when I started reading about it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is huge. This, like, this is what needs to be going on in the classroom. And as I reflected back on what had happened when my kids were in school, it's like, oh, I don't know that they're getting that much knowledge. Like on Martin Luther King Day, they like do a worksheet on Martin Luther King. And on the Chinese New Year, they might learn how to do like write Chinese letters. And, you know, but but they weren't getting a ton of content. And yeah. so um, I was like, I, the way I get in lots of my information about this is on my way back from work. I listen to podcasts and, and just I'm like a sponge. And I'm listening to this podcast where Natalie Wexler is um, being interviewed and they, and she says, I think parents are the sleeping giant. Well, I didn't like think much about it. And I just kept going. And then all of like five minutes later, I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's me. That's me. I'm that person. <laughs> so like I pull off the freeway and pull over into a side road and just like get out my phone and just start typing this email to her and was like, hi, Miss Wexler. <laughs> I'm a parent and I am not a sleeping giant anymore. I just heard your podcast. I'm awake. What do I do? Oh. Yeah. And then, um, a few days later, I actually get an email back from her. And so I'm like super excited because I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> emailed me. Um, so I was really, really excited about that. But um, so she um, kind of put me in different contact with people. And um, and I ended up talking with some people at the Knowledge or with Barbara Davison at the Knowledge Campaign Matters <laughs> and, um, and really kind of started to understand and absorb the impact of um, knowledge building on kids. And, um, and then also to kind of dovetail into that is now I'm homeschooling my child and in homeschooling, in the homeschooling world, there's not, as far as I'm familiar, people don't buy balanced literacy curriculums. Mm-hmm. They buy content con- curricula. Well, they, they buy <laughs> right. content curricula and they buy curricula that teach structured literacy. And so like, I, until I started reading Natalie Wexler's information or stuff about um, knowledge building, I didn't realize how important the role of knowledge building was. And I didn't realize how it was absent in what I had been seeing in the public schools and how it was really present in what I was now doing with Cora. Like we have this history curriculum, it's history through literature, and we just read really high quality texts. We spend two or three weeks covering topics we do really deep dives into them. Like my daughter, we were studying 18th century England and she got really into English fashion. (laughs) I I know. So I found this great fashion historian um, and we ended up doing like two or three weeks about like European fashion and what that said about social hierarchy and what Mm. it said about, I mean, it was really a study, even though it sounds like some kind of silly fashion, <laughs> but it was really an interesting window into it. And it was also something that really absorbed her and she just loved it. And so we really pulled a lot of contact. We ended up doing writing about it and, and we found some, you know, so it was really an interesting to see that level of content and then reflect back and see how that isn't present and what is going on, at least in the schools that we had been in. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking about that topic, like, even though it's so specific that there are probably a lot of things that she learned along that way that are you know, transferable things she'll see again in other readings about history, about, like you said, you know, power hierarchy and things that, that really will transfer and and become like her, those, those balls of knowledge that other (laughs) balls of knowledge will stick to. Right. right. It's, it's interesting. We did, um, with COVID last year, we homeschooled all three and, um, we did for, for black history month, I had gotten a book called, um, black heroes. And my kids were obsessed with it. So every morning at breakfast, we would read, you know, about one black hero, whether reading about Arthur Ashe or like, you know, um, trying to think um, Hatshepsut, the Egyptian pharaoh or, you know, um, Harriet Tubman. And we ended, the kids loved it. So we did black history for four months. We ended up getting like some books on Harriet Tubman. We got one on the Underground Railroad, got one on the civil rights. And then we were also studying geography. So we're studying all about you know, the different states and we moved to the South and then we were reading the books. We're reading books about um, the civil rights movement while we're studying Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia. And it really just tied well together. It was really amazing. You can see the kids pulling different pieces of information from different things that are learning. And, um, and so it's really cool to do these deep dives into content. Like in science, we did this 
I don't actually know exactly how I ended up doing a study on fungus, but we got really <laughs> like, I don't know, a month. I mean, we did a deep, deep dive into fungus. It's really been cool to see how, um, how the kids have tied that together. And then we ended up going to Maine on a biking trip and like actually seeing lots of fungus. We live in Southern California. There's not as much fungus. There's not a lot of fungus for you. <laughs> yeah. But um, so, so anyways, it's been really interesting to see this deep dive into content and, and building vocabulary and um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, so as you were cool. talking, I was like, Oh, I feel like I didn't do as good of a job in COVID as you did. So kudos. to you. <laughs> That's, no, that's amazing. I love hearing about the topics and the content and just how interesting it all is to kiddos. And again, I feel like it's like that kind of like, um, well, if kids aren't learning about stuff in school, then what are they learning about moment? You know, <laughs> that's what I keep thinking. <laughs> like, I feel like you had said knowledge building isn't on anybody's radar. Like, yeah, that it's not taught in schools. It's, it's not, I really, at least in my experience is not. And it was interesting with COVID. I felt like COVID opened this window to like, everybody could see what was going on. And and we got the text from our districts about social studies and and science and, and, um, and they, they didn't seem to be that cohesive, but, but all that said, I didn't ever see those things coming home. Like mm-hmm. when our kids were in school, I don't even know if the curriculums were being used. Like I didn't mm-hmm. ever see any of the information in the curriculum making it home. And I don't, yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure if that's because most of the time is being spent on reading and math, but but in in maybe less than effective ways. You have to spend more time <laughs> if you're not getting good results, but if you're not getting good results. It's because you're not teaching reading effectively. Um, so now I lost my train of thought there. No, it's, I, I, yeah, I just, I, I agree. Like there's, if parents, and when I say anyone, like, you know, no one's asking about knowledge building. Like, I meant the parents, like, but you're right. Like we did get a window into it. And even I got a window into it, um, you know, and I had known what my child's school was using, she didn't read a book her entire third grade year until they started James and the Giant Peach in May. And it was like a totally rando choice, just like, oh, well, we always read this one at the end of third grade. I'm like, well, what knowledge do they have? Like, what, what is, what is this working toward? And it just was very randomized. And, but I, I think that if we could um, help parents understand, so that's why I think you're such a gem, that knowledge piece is just as important as the structured literacy part. Um, it's just that structured literacy is, I think, like the thing that you can see, whereas knowledge building is is in your child's brain, like that's a little bit invisible in terms of output. Like it's not as easy to see. It, yes, I agree because, um, yeah, and, and also a, some kids are getting that knowledge building piece despite school. Yeah, that's right. Like they are getting it because their families are visiting museums on the weekend or mm-hmm. maybe they're traveling to Europe or they're going to Yosemite or maybe they're taking ballet classes and art classes and Taekwondo. Yeah. So those or like are- even TV shows. I was watching yeah. a silly dinosaur yeah. show with Elliot last night and I was like, he's really like learning a lot about dinosaurs, like herbivores versus carnivores. I was like, there's a lot in this silly show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We watched, um, we watched a video on lichen the other day from Sci- SciShow Kids and like it talked about lichen. And then my Jonah started talking about lichen on the, the, on our walk downtown. And so it was interesting to see how much he's pulling out of, you know, yeah. videos as well. Um, yeah, I think it, I think we're talking about so much privilege here too, right? Like exactly, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. The kids at the bottom right. of the wrong, whose whose parents maybe don't have the bandwidth to advocate and to supply them with this. Those kids are are getting left behind because yep. those even if they can read, even if they can decode, I don't know that they're they have. I mean, I don't think they have the background knowledge to yep. be able to comprehend what they're reading. And so I think advocating for those kids, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly advocating for those kids as far as structured literacy so that they can actually decode the words that reading. But I also want to advocate for high, high quality instructional materials 
and and good content so that those kids, if they see the word Inuit or if they see the word fungus or if they see the word I can't think of anything else. They, <laughs> they know what those words mean because you can't obviously can't comprehend if you don't understand what the vocabulary words, even if you can decode them on a page. And so, so yeah, so I, I think advocating for background knowledge is, um, is just as important as advocating for structured literacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this reminds it, me it, of a um, difficult battle, but. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, it reminds me of the podcast we just did with Nell Duke who said like, and these two things should be happening right at the same time. It's not a, you know, often it's like we focus on one or we focus on the other, or if it's not a problem, we don't focus on one or the other, but like both of those need to be happening from, I mean, really before school starts, honestly, but (laughs) especially from their youngest years in school. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I mean, I think too about medicine, like I, I always go back to medicine and like, I think what if I weren't, what if I didn't know about how to take care of my kids under anesthesia. Like, mm-hmm. right. It's, it's, it's my response. Like I would be killing kids kind of left and right, you know, like you have to know how to do effective interventions, whether you're doing medicine or whether you're mm-hmm. teaching kids to read, they both involve science. And, mm-hmm. and it's just this, uh, that's one of the things when I first got into advocacy, I was just befuddled. It's like, why isn't this happening in medicine? When you figure out what to do, if a kid has Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, everybody does it. Everybody right. reads the research and then you do effective practice. Right. And I just was befuddled that why doesn't that happen in, in schools? I'm still befuddled. But. We're actually very <laughs> befuddled. Yeah. I was going to add another fun word to that. I was like, this is quite a kerfuffle. Like it is definitely like every day. I'm like, why are we still why? doing this? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Yeah, yes. oh, I really feel that's, you. That's the question. And I love, I love that we came full circle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was just gonna say I've got so many, so many friends who are teachers, and then um, just seeing the teachers that my kids have had who are great people who are really trying hard, and they just don't know this information is out there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. I feel like we, you know, we started this podcast to get like the good word about high quality materials out there. And just to kind of spread some good, like here, let's hear good stories. And now it's like, I feel like I'm advocating too, you know, like there's so, there's so much that, that I hope that people can take away, like, you know, parents and educators from this podcast. Um, It's just, your story is, is really invaluable. So we are so thankful and grateful that you shared it today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's been an honor. (laughs) Before you go, Katie, you know that we always <laughs> ask for a piece of advice for, from our guests. So I hope you're ready to share. I am ready, but I, I was actually knowing you were going to ask this question, thinking, <laughs> oh, I'm, I've already said it. Um, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Reinforcing what, something you said okay. is fine. <laughs> so I think my my piece of advice would be, um, maybe two pieces of advice. Um, one piece would be that just to go back to the emotional and social, like psychological impact of not being able to read and just to, to let teachers know how profound that impact is on the child. I mean, it lasts for years and, um, and it's, even if you aren't seeing the behaviors in class, um, those children are still struggling. I know this from the struggle with my daughter. And I know this from the tons of other parents I've talked to whose kids are all going through the exact same thing. Yeah. as my daughter. So just recognizing like what you're doing in the classroom with reading instruction is not just preparing the child to be a learner for the rest of their life, but it's also preparing the child to be mentally healthy, or at least giving them a step up as, as far as mental health. Absolutely. Um, so, so that reading is really important from the, the emotional um, impact point too. And then my other, I think my other thing is, is I think back to, um, to, how I take care of my patients at work and understanding I'm not taking care of 24 patients at once. I have one patient (laughs) who I'm anesthetizing. So it's different, but, um, I, I get in there and I do the professional development. I do the continuing education so that my children that I'm taking care of can have good outcomes from their surgeries and wake up Mm -hmm. from their anesthesia safely. And, and I, think, um, 
that should be done in education as well, whether it just means advocating for your district to do high quality professional development, Mm -hmm. um, or if it means educating yourself, which is hard because I know teachers have families of their own. They're working hard. They're doing lesson plans. If you can find some time to do professional development yourself and educate yourself about how the mind actually learns to read and about the the importance of building knowledge for kids and why that's important and how you do that, I think um, those would be my two takeaways. So, yeah, those are great. Those are great takeaways, (laughs) especially as a parent. You sound like a professional literacy teacher. And it's funny because (laughs) what you just mentioned as that last part, like you said, I know teachers are are busy. They're crafting lesson plans and things like that. That's that's the lift that we hope that high quality instructional materials lifts off teachers. Right. And, you know, I one of my good friends is, is a teacher. We went through undergrad together and did lots of, you know, student teaching together, everything. Um, we're still really good friends and she doesn't have high quality materials. And she's like, I listen to your podcast and I just think what I would give to have the lesson plans already done. So I can think about my students and, and how to use what's in front of me to help them read, you know, learn math or whatever, rather than have to craft plans or put together 12 different things from the district. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I, I, I love that she thinks of it like, a, like a great gift. And, and, and I think that that's like the kind of the narrative that we're hoping to shift is like, that this is a beautiful gift for teachers that like you said, Katie can help them to have the time to <laughs> read the, the science of reading research and to become, um, more adept at get drilling down into the students. Like maybe somebody could notice, have noticed about Cora had Cora's district had high quality materials, right? Like it's hard to notice when you're doing a million things. So yeah, I just want to say that. And thank you for that incredible advice. Yeah. Well, thank you both. It was great to talk to you, Katie. Thank you so much. You, you also, Melissa and Lori, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. All right, we'll talk to you soon, Katie. Okay, sounds good. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, literacy lovers. Be sure to visit our website to subscribe to our newsletter and podcast. It's literacypodcast.com. Yep, and don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Most of them are at Literacy Podcast. Yes, and... Please, please, please reach out to us. Melissa, what's our email address? Melissa and Lori at literacypodcast.com is our email address. And we love getting emails from you all. And <laughs> Lori we and really I really read them. Yeah, and we, we really, really respond. Fun. We just love, we love when you all reach out and we, we get to have conversations with you. So please, please email yep. us. Let us know what you're thinking, what you're thinking about literacy, what you're thinking about ideas for us to podcast about. Yes. Ideas for <laughs> podcasting, anything. We, we love to hear from you, what you liked, what you want. Yeah. We're here but for you. Mostly y'all are asking questions, which is great. Yes. <laughs> we don't mind that either. Yes. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. Thank you, everybody.